0: Good morning everyone! Glad to see you all here before the rain starts. We're gonna get you out before that happens. We are on our last day of this study of Luke. Oh, I know, so sad. So a quick reminder that we will start up again in the fall. We're going to have a very similar schedule to what we had this year. After Labor Day we're gonna kick back in in this space and you will get an email with all of that information. If you have not received an email from Susan or from me, likely from Susan, about this Bible study, then you are either not on our list or the email we have for you is not right. And so please do sign up on the lists on your way out so that we're able to let you know when we will start again next fall. And of course, we're going to put this on the school. Uh, the school. The church information, so it'll be on the calendar and in the newsletter and all of that good stuff. But just so you know exactly when we're going to start again and get the schedule, do make sure you put your email address on the list on your way out. And before we kick in this last session, let's say a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the gift of this life and for giving us the opportunity to study the Gospel of Luke, to know what you are doing in the world and how we can be a part of that work. Bless us in our time together. Bless us in our relationships with one another that they have deepened and will continue to do so because of your holy word. Help us to do the work you've given us to do in the world you love so much to extend and expand and grow your kingdom here on earth. Today we say special prayers for those have requested them, including Effie, Robbie, Bob, Taylor, David, Melanie, Rhett, and Jack. We also say prayers for those unnamed that we hold in our hearts and minds. Be with all of us, and keep us safe this summer, and bring us back to continue to do this work together in the fall. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 24 is the final chapter in the Gospel of Luke. And just a reminder that chapters 22 and 3 are really what we would consider the passion story. And the passion story is that arc that we tell on Good Friday and beyond of Jesus' sort of suffering and then his death and his burial. And that's where we ended chapter 23 last week was with Jesus' burial. I got a question last week. And I wasn't entirely sure what the question meant, Um, but I'm going to give it a go. So the question was, where's, the question actually says, where's the proof that the women came back to the tomb? I'm not positive what that says. Um, Something may be that day or the next something like that. But I think I just want to make sure that we are clear. At the very end of chapter 23, it says that The women who had come with him, Jesus, from Galilee, followed Jesus until they saw him in the tomb and how his body was laid, and then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. So, language like that is a little vague. Then they returned. That could mean a couple different things, but the implication that most people assume here is that they returned to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body. So they would have followed the body from the cross into the tomb, and then they would have done some kind of continued preparation to Jesus' body once it was laid in the tomb. So we sort of touched on this last, last week, but bodies would have been anointed with oils and other perfumes in order to help the process of uh, not, not the right word. Yeah, it's not really decomposition, kind of. Um, they want to make sure the body is set, right? So however the body um, is sort of set, and it's not a mummification, but it kind of, it's like a simple mummification kind of thing. And it helps the body not only to not smell as bad, but it also helps for the body to sort of be preserved. It will just kind of dry up. And that's really what they wanted for the body. This would have been different in different regions. They would have had different kind of spice blends and oil blends in order to do this the way they really wanted it done. And it would have happened immediately after he came off the cross, and it would have continued for weeks at a time in order to make sure that the body was done properly. Now, except for the Sabbath, and it says that at the end of the Gospel. So they would have done it that day because if we combine all the Gospels, we know that Joseph of Arimathea wanted Jesus' body down that day because the next day was the Sabbath. And if Jesus' body wasn't taken down by the Sabbath, then his body would have stayed on the cross all the Sabbath until the next day. Then you're talking about just gross. And so they wanted the body off to be able to clean the body and all that stuff. One interesting thing, if Those of you who have been to Jerusalem, or those of you who may be wanting to go to Jerusalem, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was the massive church that Constantine built over both the place where Jesus was crucified and buried, has this very interesting spot that a lot of people really kind of miss. They They don't know what it is. When you come in the side of the church, now back in the day when Constantine built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, There were long boulevards through the cities, and many of you know that the Romans liked their roads straight. And so you sort of know, if you go to the ancient world, kind of the old Roman Empire, and you see some long straight road, the Romans did that. Curvy roads were what locals did. Romans did nice long straight roads. And so what he did through Jerusalem is he made a nice long straight road all the way into the church. And how you do that is you just destroy stuff. And so that's what he did. He just destroyed a nice, long, straight path right into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Well, over time, as different groups took charge of Jerusalem, they built stuff back up. So today, you can't go in what would have been the front door of the sepulchre. You've got to go in the side. And you go in the side, really in between, where Jesus was crucified and buried. But when you go in, right on the floor is this long pink piece of marble. And it's interesting looking, and there are some candles hung above it, but if you don't know what it is, it just kind of looks interesting. And then you fork and you go either to where he was crucified or buried. But I went one morning when I was there years ago and saw some ladies come early in the morning and pour perfume and other things on that stone and wipe it with their veils or their scarves and when I asked around, they, they believed that that was the stone on which Jesus' body would have come off the cross and was laid in order to be first anointed and wrapped before being put in the tomb. And so if we know that kind of physical reality of the space, then it makes a little more sense to know that the women would have probably done something and then would have then returned to sort of do more in the tomb before the Sabbath day. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, so, so the question is, what about the image that's represented in the Pieta, which is Mary holding Jesus' body? I mean, that could have happened. It's not necessary. You know, Jesus' body—so if you think about a grown man's body is heavy. And especially—I mean, I, you've probably all done this, where you, know, you you have a baby, and the baby's— great, right? You can hold a baby for a long time. Then that baby starts to grow. And even, even a big toddler, you can technically hold them unless they're asleep. And it's like them awake and them asleep. It's like they weigh twice as much, right? When they're just totally limp and unconscious. So if you just imagine that times 10, you know, his body would have been heavy. And so no one person is doing any of this. No one person would have lifted him off the cross or carried him to the tomb or done the preparation. This was teamwork. Is it possible that Mary would have kind of cradled him in her her arms? Of course it is. But we don't get every single moment of that in Scripture, and we don't get that in Luke, for sure. There's no moment like that. But it's a lovely image, especially when people don't run at it with an axe. Did you hear about that in the Vatican when they did that years ago? which is now it's behind glass. used to not be. First time I saw it, it wasn't, but now it is. Any other questions just to clarify the end of 23? All right. So let's jump into 24. We've got three sections of chapter 24. The first is the resurrection. Then, we've got the road to Emmaus. And then we've got the appearances and the ascension. Let's start with the resurrection. We are told that on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking spices that they had prepared. So, the they is the women and so the women are coming back so first day of the week would imply jesus was buried then it was the sabbath then another day and it's that day that they're coming that first day of the week the sabbath would have been over they're back now to do what they couldn't do on that sabbath day because that would have been considered work so the women arrived completely confused so what we see about this is they found the stone rolled away Now, we mentioned this last week. Someone asked, what about this whole tombstone rolling deal? It would have been possible to roll a stone back and forth. So the process of anointing a body would have been done over days, potentially weeks, and so it was very normal that someone would have come back to the tomb and had a person roll the stone away. Not easy, but doable. And yet, at this moment, when they arrive, Stone has already been rolled away. So the first impression is the tomb is open. That means one of two things. But what they probably thought was that grave robbers had come, right? This is sort of the bad news moment, is they figured someone has uh, gone in and disturbed his body. And when they see that his body is not there, that's, I'm sure, certainly what they think. But two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. So if you imagine yourself, they're standing at the tomb, probably not even sure that they should go in, right? I mean, at this point, is someone still in there? Who knows? And so as they're trying to decide what next, two men in dazzling clothes stand beside them. And then these men say to the women, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And then they say, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again, and then they remembered his words. This is a very interesting sort of moment because it's totally human. Jesus has said this is going to happen explicitly three times. He's hinted at it many more times than that. But if we go back the very first time in chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus says... The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Like, any questions? I mean, that is so clear. And he said that three times in Luke's gospel alone. So he has said this, and he said this, and he said this. And these two men in dazzling clothes remind the women, remember when he said that? That's what this is. Right? He said this was going to happen. Hello. And then the women remember his words. How easy is it to forget anything? I forget all the time. It, you name it, I forget it. And I'm sure we're all sort of in that same situation. And even though we may not forget something explicit, how often do we know something is true, and yet it, we make a mistake again and again and again, and we always have that moment, oh, That's right. You know, I remember that. That's really what's happening here. Jesus' disciples, including the women, just simply didn't put it together. Or, perhaps, they thought that Jesus was speaking in metaphors. You could theoretically have understood Jesus as metaphorical. If we think about the way that Jews believed in whatever came after death, Many Jews believed that there would be a resurrection, but it's not immediate. For the Jews, some believed that was it, like you're dead and you're dead. Others believed there would be a resurrection at some point when the Messiah or when God sort of returned to earth. We know that this is the case because, again, if you go to Jerusalem, the story of the Jews says that when the Messiah comes to earth, he will come to the temple. And when he comes, he will come to the temple from the Mount of Olives. And so if you think about the geography of that space, there is one little hill over here, the Mount of Olives, and there's one little hill over here, which is the temple. They are not far away. This is not a big space. This is not like Rocky Mountain Mountains, okay? These are little rolling hill hills, even though we call them mountains. And sloping down from the Mount of Olives, today, if you go to Jerusalem, are thousands of tight little burial plots for the Jews who want to be the first to be raised. And so if Jesus hits the Mount of Olives, if you imagine Jesus hits the Mount of Olives, then he's got to get down the mountain and then back up the mountain to the temple so everybody that's there on the side of the mountain, they get it raised first. Right? That's what's happening. So it's almost like you drop a Rock in the lake and you see the ripples and all of the Important wealthy Jews who could get there wanted to be right there. So they caught one of those first ripples and I guess that's better. Whatever. So that's that is the idea behind resurrection that Jesus's early followers could have understood. So yes, that's gonna happen but not on the third day. That was perhaps not quite connected. And so when they remember his words, they actually, in that moment, know, oh, he meant now. And that changes everything. Because yes, he could have meant at some point, like some Jews believed, but he has changed this to now. So beyond that, I want to have a little bit of a feminist moment, sorry, and say, That in all four Gospels, Jesus' resurrection was declared to women first. So if we look, I want to compare this moment in Luke and the other Gospels. In Luke, we just heard that two men in dazzling clothes declared, He is not here, He is risen. In Mark, there's an earthquake, and the angel of the Lord told the women, He is not here, He has been risen. In Matthew, they arrive, and the, to- and the stone is rolled away, and a young man in a white robe tells the women, he's not here, he's been risen. Now, in John, it's a little different, because the women show up, the tomb is empty, they run back to where the people are, the male disciples come with them to the tomb, and they see, and they, Jesus isn't there, and they run away. And the women are left there, Mary Magdalene in particular, and she sees two divine beings, two angels, And says, where is he? And then a voice behind her says, hey Mary. And she turns around and confuses him for the gardener, but it actually is Jesus. So those are the four different ways that the Gospels tell the story of this moment. So in only one is Jesus actually appearing. In the other three, it's some combination of one or two divine beings that say he's not here, he has been raised. What is interesting about all four of those is that even when men are a part of that story, they then leave before any godly person says he's raised. Just a quick note. Now, the, hey, yes. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those things, and I don't need to make this a big deal because I'm, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but the idea that there's somehow a better way for men to lead is just, it's just not true. And if we think about, not only does the scripture point out the importance of women along with men as being followers of Jesus in this moment, to a modern eye, but if you put that story 2,000 years ago, that is a profoundly scandalous story to tell. right? In fact, if we were to be fair, I would say that unless that story was so true that everybody knew it, it is very likely that 50, 60, 70 years after the fact, men writing the Gospels would have just figured out a way for it not to have been that way. I mean, it it had to have been explicit that that is what happened, and everybody knew it, So a gospel writer couldn't get away with telling it any other way. So it's just important for us to note because that is not only, unfortunately, almost still a little countercultural today, thankfully not as much. It would have been radically countercultural 2,000 years ago, and that's still the way it happened. Now, before we move away from the resurrection moment, we know how chapter 23 ended, and we know how this resurrection experience happened with the women and some of the other disciples at the tomb site. What though, from a narrative and a literary perspective, is missing? There it is. We don't get anything about the actual resurrection. Don't you think that's good enough to include in the story? So why isn't it included in the story? So I think it's a good question for us to ask when something like that is so obviously omitted. Why? We don't know the real why, but I think that we can, looking at the way that these stories are told, particularly moving on into chapter 24 in Luke, see that Jesus's resurrection is important, yes. That's not the point. The point is how we respond to Jesus' resurrection. And for Luke, that is absolutely the most important point. For the other gospel writers, that is sort of important. But Luke makes that the most important point of this chapter. When he is ending his gospel, yes, Jesus resurrected. Check. I mean, it's just like an afterthought. It happened. Because what is most important, not only to the people then, but also to us now, is how we then change the way we live because of the resurrection. Just a quick little note, as we become good Bible-studiers, it's always a good opportunity when we notice that there should have likely been something there, and it wasn't. Was that just simply bad storytelling? It could have been if it was one gospel. But if all four leave out that moment, we should perk up and say, why do we think that they did that? And I think we get the answer when we look beyond that actual tomb moment to see how the resurrection impacts everyone around them. So any questions or thoughts before we move on to the road to Emmaus? Then let's go. The road to Emmaus. Last week, I said something that I didn't expect to necessarily hit, but multiple people have mentioned to me since then When Jesus Is arrested and goes on trial And then is crucified I mentioned that Luke, who is the great parable writer Puts, makes Jesus the actual parable of that moment So Jesus, who had told the parables, now became one In that same way The Road to Emmaus is a real-life parable story. Jesus told a bunch of great parables up to this point. And this is perhaps when the truth of all those parables is manifested in real life. Everyone has a favorite parable, probably. For most, and I would say throughout history, the parable of the prodigal son is probably the top of that list. If we were to poll everybody and have everybody rank them all, that has the most resonance. This story, Road to Emmaus, is as good as the prodigal son, but it's real life. Luke is a fabulous storyteller, and we know this. This little section of chapter 24 is remarkable and so we're going to take a little minute to unpack all of it because it is so good so before we start i want to note that the story of the road to emmaus is only in luke so just one of those little mental notes you will not find this in the other gospels with one little exception in the gospel of mark so in matthew and john nothing about this at all no word in mark we have two little verses that says, After this, Jesus appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So Mark, Mark is a hard gospel to study because he uses, he constantly uses indefinite pronouns. And you have no idea what he's referring to. And so you have to just make a guess. So it's, it's like talking to my, you know, nine-year-old. It's, what what are you talking about? You know, when they say things like, you know, they did that. What? I, I don't know. It, out of no context, right? They did that. I, I don't know what you're talking about. So Mark is sort of like that, but what Mark is really saying is he appeared to a couple disciples. Those disciples went back to the other disciples, told them what had happened, and those other disciples didn't believe the two that saw Jesus. Okay, so Mark implies that there could have been a story like this. But Luke unpacks the whole thing and gives us this beautiful, beautiful scene. Now, characters in this story, we have Cleopas. Cleopas and his companion. So there are two people, one unnamed. That might mean that the other unnamed person is a woman, first off. And that makes sense if we compare names to what we see in other Gospels. So in the Gospel of John, at the foot of the cross, we get this passage. Standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Now what's interesting about that is Clopas is the Hebrew form of Cleopas, which is Greek. So it is very possible that it's the same person, which means that in this story, even though Luke does not name her, this is Cleopas and his wife, Mary, who would have been Mary, Jesus' mother's sister. All right? So you, it is very plausible that Jesus' aunt and uncle, Cleopas and Mary, are walking to Emmaus. All right? We get that Hebrew-Greek thing, just a little aside. Someone asked me once, what's the difference, do you know the difference between hallelujah and alleluia? Hallelujah is Hebrew, and alleluia is Greek. Same word. And the only reason that they're listed differently is if someone took a Hebrew translation or someone took a Greek translation. So that's what we get here with Cleopas and Clopas. And we get that a couple different times, words that we know pretty well. So, Jesus' aunt and uncle are walking to Emmaus. Cleopas, we see, has great faith in who Jesus was. So as they're walking on this road, they come upon a stranger. The stranger says, why are you so sad? And Cleopas says, do you not know what has happened? Which is very interesting because it's very likely that Jesus' crucifixion and death would not have actually been that big a deal to most people. I, again, sorry, all this Jerusalem stuff. If you get a chance to go to Jerusalem, most people will walk the Via de la Rosa, which is the path that Jesus walked from Pilate's house to where he was crucified. What was remarkable to me is we walked it one early morning, and we're carrying, like, a cross of wood. I mean, it wasn't a giant one, but it was a decent one. And we're walking through the streets, and not a person in that city cared what we were doing at all. Not only did they not care, and it's probably because they see this every day. Not only did they not care, but we were very inconvenient, right? People are trying to get to work. They're trying to get to school. These pilgrims are carrying crosses again through the streets and in my way, right? And it occurred to me that is very likely what actually happened, right? The town did not shut down for Jesus' crucifixion. He was one of those people that the Romans crucified. And there were some people, like his disciples, who cared. But the great majority of the people in the city were inconvenienced by this group of people walking through the streets because they had work to do. And so Cleopas saying, are you the only person who doesn't know what happened, is a little dramatic. Because it's likely plenty of people did not know what happened because Jesus didn't matter to most people at that moment. So, Cleopas says, are you the only person who doesn't know? And Jesus says, no, tell me, what happened? Cleopas begins to explain his faith in Jesus, and what Jesus taught, and how passionate he was about following Jesus' teachings. So, in those first few verses, Cleopas is like a champ, right? Not only does he understand the story, but he's telling the story to a stranger, which Remember, Jesus was just crucified for teaching the stuff he taught. Anyone claiming to be his follower and even potentially sharing that message could easily be a target of the Romans. I mean, we see Peter just run away in denial. And here Cleopas is telling a stranger the story of Jesus. That's risky. You would think that Jesus, hearing his faith and his passion... Seeing his courage to tell a stranger his story would actually win him some points. But then Jesus, who is not interested in comforting him with a warm hug, says... (laughs) Oh, this is chapter, verse 25. Oh, how foolish you are, (laughs) and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Like, seriously, he gets no credit for all of this stuff? Nope. He gets none. Jesus says, you fool. You have missed the point entirely. He says, was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them all the things about himself in the scriptures. This is a very interesting moment, because Cleopas seems to get it Except he doesn't get what is most important. And that is, everything has changed. Everything up to this point was misunderstood. And Jesus has come to clarify it. So just simply knowing what had been understood and somehow thinking it connected to Jesus missed the whole point. Cleopas' starting place was not right and Jesus came to change the starting place to create something new. And Cleopas like all the other disciples were still living in the old paradigm. They had missed it entirely. Even though their intentions were so good, they'd missed. Why it's important for us to understand this is because we still do this. We still think That Jesus makes sense on our terms, and he does not. What Jesus really does is not save us from suffering, but he has saved us through suffering. And our lives are not meant to be a cakewalk because Jesus has done what he's done. Instead, we are remade, and nothing the world can do to us Nothing the world can give us or take away from us Changes what is most important this cosmic divine truth That God loves us never leaves us and that everything in this world will be made new Everything will be redeemed because of God's love How many of us every one of us me too in here Has experiences where we think why God? that's based on a misunderstanding that because of what Jesus has done, we should no longer have any problems. No, that is not true. We, like Cleopas and Mary, have started in the wrong place. And no matter what hoops we jump through, how often we pray, how much we give, how much we do, if we don't start from the right place, Jesus says, we are fools. That is what we get in this story. That's actually the first thing we get in this story. There are many things we get in the story. The first thing we get from this story is that our starting place has to change. And that's really difficult. And even for Jesus' his own aunt and uncle, who would have known him his whole life, seen everything that happened to him, heard everything he taught, they still missed that starting place. We're called to try and not miss it like they did. Now I'm gonna pause. How do you do that? It's so easy. No. Um, So the question is, how do you do that? It's a good question. The real answer is we can't on our own. We do need God. We need the constant presence of Christ in order to try. So that's that's really the secret, I think, of a Christian life, is we never get all the way there. St. Augustine, back in the 4th century, wrote a book called The Confessions. Okay, sorry, there are two Augustines. There's Augustine of Hippo, he was a bishop in North Africa in the 4th century, and then there's Augustine of Canterbury. So our St. Augustine, who went from Rome. Pope Gregory the Great sent Augustine of Canterbury to England to save all of the pagans that lived in the UK. And he landed in Canterbury, started his church, and the gospel spread from there, which is why we, as Anglican Christians, hold Canterbury as kind of our traditional starting place for the Church of England. But Augustine of Hippo, some 600 years earlier, was a bishop in North Africa, and he wrote a book called The Confessions. If you've never read it, this could be a great little summer reading for you. I'm talking, oh no, no, I know you laugh. Because if you've ever read anything of Augustine, he is dense and difficult to understand, and his city of God, which is very popular for people to study, is like that. Alright? Confessions is like a hundred pages, and it's totally narrative. And what it is, is it's this bishop's wrestling with how he was a bad kid. It's really kind of good. He tells stories about being a kid and stealing things and hurting other people and doing things that he shouldn't have done. And as an adult, he can justify God's love of him when he had done all of these things. And by all of these things, He was not some sort of psychopath. He was just a normal person who made pretty normal mistakes, something that we could all likely uh, relate to. And what he says is the journey toward God is a journey that is a constant reminder of how we are imperfect and our effort to try to undo our imperfections, knowing all the while... We never will in this life. The point of a Christian life is to try. And it's a really excellent way of looking at this specific idea. We go into this life knowing that it is true and that it is worth the effort and that we will never get there. That is an unusual way to be because we are taught, what? The great lie. What's the great lie? You can do anything you wanna do. And you can be anything you wanna be. And every one of us has said that to some child at some point, <laughs> and we're not bad for it, but that is not true. And that is okay. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard because hard work means we will get better. Does not mean that hard work will make us a professional athlete, or a Nobel laureate, or any of the above. It does mean, however, we will get better, and the better is the real reward. And in essence, that's what we're dealing with here, is the struggle to get there, knowing we won't, is actually what's worthwhile. We'll figure, we'll talk a bit more because Part of this chapter points to the church. It's important, I'll plant that seed now. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. We have been raised, most of us, in a culture in which our individual salvation is always first and foremost for any Christian moment, right? Are you saved? Where are you going when you die? have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? It's all about our individualism. That is a very modern construct. And by modern, I mean reformed construct. There was no concern about any individual until the Protestant Reformation. Protestants messed it all up because they made it about the individual and began to undermine the community. I think individuals are important. Yes, we are all very special and important. However, we work hard at following Christ together. We, on our own, cannot do this. That is why we have a church. And that's why the best of a church helps us become vulnerable together. Because so long as we present all the good stuff, right, that's the that's the evil, that's sort of the psychosis that social media has created, is mostly two things happen. Either people post all the shiny, sparkly things that they do, right? Hey, it's Megan at the beach. You know, it's that kind of stuff. Or it's this constant sick need to tell everyone every single thing you do all the time for validation. Both are problematic in different ways because what both do is they undermine what real community is meant to be. And that's not always a feel good, right? Your real friends don't make you feel good all the time. Your real friends make you feel good when it's appropriate and they hold you accountable when you screw up when appropriate. That doesn't feel good, but it is very good for you. And we don't like to feel bad anymore and we do our best to not feel bad anymore. And feeling bad is so healthy. I mean, I I do this as a parent, as I'm sure many of you do or have done. My job is not to make my children happy, like never. And if they are unhappy because of some good reason, then you just kind of have to move through it. I mean, that's life. And I want very much for them as they become adults to know that. What they experience is not good or bad based on their happiness. That is not the way we evaluate what is good in the world. We can be unhappy doing a very good thing. That is fine. Remember, we've talked about this before, right, where I said Jesus does not care if you are happy. That, that is kind of countercultural now because people bend over backwards to make sure people are happy. But That's really not the point of the gospel. And I'm off on a tangent, so we're going to pull it back in. So, we've got that one idea of Emmaus. Then we get what is so good. So, come on with me. Look at verses 30 or so of chapter 24. So, it's kind of the second part—I'll read it to you, too, so if you don't have the Bible, don't worry about it—the second part of this Emmaus story Is them figuring out it's Jesus. So the first part is stranger on the road, explaining to them what happened, and then the second part is realizing it's Jesus. The significance for Luke as a storyteller. Now we are not, we are talking about something that happened, but we are also talking about a brilliant storyteller who tells the story in a particular way. To make sure we really get the gravity of the moment and in order to do that we've got to go back to the beginning the second chapter of Genesis verse 6 we hear when the woman saw that the tree was good for food she took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate then their eyes were opened Now, in this road to Emmaus story, they sit down to eat. And we get from Luke, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. It is not an accident that we've got a meal in Genesis that brings us away from God. And now we've got a meal that brings us back. Luke does not mean this as an accident. This is not just a phrase he likes that he uses other places. He means that for this couple, their eyes have been opened to the new creation, the new opportunity that Jesus has made possible, that God has hoped and wished for, has tried to work through prophets, And is finally fulfilled in the person of Jesus. What we lost when we fell away from God, we now get back in Jesus. That's good stuff. That's how I'll end Emmaus. Questions or thoughts? So question, why don't people recognize Jesus? And is it important that they don't? I think we always have to I think we always have to understand that these are storytellers telling a story. Is it that they didn't recognize him? Maybe. I have heard some people take this story and spend huge amount of time talking about the body that Jesus was resurrected in. So the question being, his followers who knew him well should have just recognized him, like, like you would recognize any of your close friends, right? And if this is Jesus' aunt and uncle, are you really not going to recognize a niece or nephew of yours? I mean, that's, that's a pretty far-fetched idea. So then people say, well, if they didn't recognize him, he must have looked different. Well, if he looks different, that must be because his resurrected body was not like his earthly body. Ah, so that means (coughs) that we are not going to be resurrected in these bodies, and when we are resurrected, we're going to look different, which allows us to do things like not worry if we're buried and our bodies decompose, or even get cremated, or in war, and I'm not joking. One of the big issues for Christians over history— has been losing body parts in war because don't you need them when your body is resurrected? That makes total sense if you need the body. But a lot of people have said, maybe you don't. And maybe your body is new and it's created new and that's why people didn't recognize Jesus. That's all well and good, except the gospel writers It is seems most plausible that the gospel writers are not trying to make some statement on our after resurrection bodies And it seems most plausible That they are trying to make a theological statement About how we do not recognize God When God is right in front of us That's what I like most yes, we can get into the physical body if you want to, if that's important. It used to be much more important, except now I bet almost everyone in this room is planning to be cremated because we've all gotten to the point where like, take it, whatever. And I mean, at some point, God willing, I live long enough to not want whatever body I'm in when I go, right? I mean, that, if God allows it, I would love to be old enough to say, no, seriously, take it. It's fine, right? And so, I mean, that's, that's a great gift. I think that the point here for the storytellers is that none of us recognize God most of the time. Even when we know what God is doing, we know, if we are intentional, we know where to look, but a second after we are being intentional, we begin to live our lives again, and we just blow through it with habit, with whatever. We are all probably in a situation where we can drive anywhere and not remember the drive. It's that kind of thing, right? We do things on autopilot. We have created habits, which is why habits are so good or bad for us, because once we have them, they are ingrained. And the more we do it, the harder it is for them to be broken. So we as habit or habitual humans just miss God all the time. And so here are these people on the road to Emmaus, and Emmaus is not important, by the way. It just happens to be a town, and they were on their way there. They're sad and overwhelmed at the loss of this person they thought was so great. And their grief keeps them from seeing the person they thought they lost right in front of them. I like this story more if Jesus looked like Jesus, because I think that is more true to the way that we live. We often don't see something right in front of us, not because we don't recognize that what's something, but because we are so preoccupied with our own selves that we can't even see with clarity in front of us. That is a real lesson, because that's every one of us. We are self-centered by nature, quite literally by nature, so that we can survive. And it's working to overcome being consumed by ourself that allows us to see the work God's doing and be a part of it. The questions or thoughts before we get to the very last section? So comment is... Maybe they weren't expecting to see him again. For sure, they weren't expecting to see him again. That was, that's part of the glory of the story is they had the women, his disciples, his relatives, none of them were waiting for the third day to see him again. That was not in anyone's mind. And yet it happened and it changed everything about the way they understood the world. I think that's really the point why do we go to church? It is fundamentally not to learn something new, although occasionally that happens. It's to remember what we already know. That's the point of church. That's why we are liturgical Christians, because it doesn't, it doesn't actually need to be new every single week, because we have forgotten since last week the stuff that we already know. But that's the truth, right? So we come... And we do the same rhythm every week, which some people say, God, the same thing. It's boring. No, listen, between Sunday to Sunday, did you ever forget anything that you learned? Oh my gosh, like before you left the doors of the church, you're forgetting it, right? And so that's the point of church is we remember and then we remember again and we remember again and we remember together, right? Don't go do this on your own. Do it together. And I think that that's the ultimate Rhythm of Christian life is the constant remembering. Why would you want to pray every day? Again, here's here's our prayer thing right which we got in the weeds on months ago God knows God loves when we pray But the best thing about prayer is that we recenter ourselves we remember what we forgot. There was a study done back in the, oh gosh, it was around 2002. 70, ugh, I'm going to be close, something between 75 and 80% of students who went to Harvard Law School said they wanted to work for nonprofits when they graduated. Less than 5% upon graduation, did. Now, we could be cynical and say they just chased the money, but I don't think so. I think there's something much more significant happening here that is commentary on the human condition, which is they ended up forgetting. They, they forgot they wanted to do that, and I had a professor who taught a course called forgetting ourselves on purpose. The idea that we left to our own devices just forget, I think, is a real truth. And to me, that's how I interpret these appearance stories of Jesus is reminding the disciples what they are, who they are, what they know. They already know, they just forgot. I mean, I know when I, when my kids go do something without me, camp over the summer, or maybe a sleepover, or something beyond just the normal things, the thing I always say to them is, remember who you are. That's how I leave them. Because it's so easy to forget. And if that's the one thing, like when I'm gone, if that's the one thing they remember I said to them, I think that's perhaps the most helpful thing I could do. Because that's, Maybe the whole point of church is that we remember who we are. And so to close this out, Jesus goes back, appears to his disciples, and in essence does the same thing with them. (laughs) He shares a meal, unpacks scriptures, makes all the connections from the prophets of old to explain how he fulfills what had been promised for so long. After he opens up their mind to the scriptures, he tells them, repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in my name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Verse 47. You are the witnesses of these things. He leaves his disciples with a charge. You now know what God wants for all people. And you are now called to go from this place, Jerusalem, and spread the story to all nations. And after he does this, he went out with them to Bethany, and he ascended into heaven. That's the end of season one season two, overlaps with this section of chapter 24. When we get to Acts of the Apostles, it begins with remembering Theophilus and retells this particular story of Jesus' appearance, meal with the disciples, and ascension, before that second season turns toward what the disciples will do. So Luke is over. Next year, we'll look at what they did. Good to be with you all this year. See you next year.